everybody it's sunday june 1st 2014 hope you're having a great day half of the year has gone by already can you believe it and i want you to take a moment think back on where you were six months ago um if you don't have a store which i know there's a lot of you because every time i get an email opt-in there is a survey that you fill out and probably half of the people that listen to this podcast are still trying to find an idea or finding a business model to get started so my, my point is, if you've been with me here for a while, why haven't you started yet? You know, it's been six months out of the year. Why are you just sitting around? And, you know, half the year has gone by. How much longer are you going to wait to start? And there's never a perfect time for anything. And once you start, there's actually a million, billion other things that you must scale up to. All right, so take a few moments, think about that. And, uh, you know, hope you get started with this year and hope you have a business that's really successful. And maybe I'll have you on the podcast in the future. Now, if you have a store, how have your sales grown? What have you done to make things better? What's worked out this year and what hasn't? Uh, most importantly, what are you doing in the next six months to make things even better? Uh, something to think about as June hits us all today. So my guest today is Nick Rommel, uh, who I actually met a year ago while I was visiting my supplier in China. Uh, we had a mutual friend through the DC, also a former podcast guest. Uh, Ryan Deltran over at Original Grain. And so I hung out with Nick about a year ago. We had some Mexican food in southern China, actually at an Irish bar. And around then, he was launching a watch company called Lexel off Kickstarter. Uh, he's been doing import-export sourcing in China for a couple of years. And it was just interesting to be in different circles, you know, visiting uh, what he's doing, talking to his friends. And one thing you notice is that when you hang around different social circles, each group will have their own terms. So if you work in politics, they'll talk about bills, legislations, campaigns. If you work in finance, they'll talk about markets, stocks, bonds, interest rates, etc. And what was funny was that hanging out with Nick and his crowd, they were talking about sourcing. They were talking about shipping crates, import exports, and much more. And the gossip that naturally comes from these conversations is, is very different. I remember Nick over dinner, they're talking about, you know, who's this guy that imported six containers of wine last week? I heard it was from California. You know, we need to find out who this guy was. And I guess it's not that much different from, say, a bunch of bros in California wearing oversized sports jerseys, you know, on a barbecue talking about their favorite sports team. But, you know, either way, I've known Nick for a while and the number of businesses he has out there. So today we're going to just bounce around different topics, talk about sourcing in China, uh, Kickstarter and, you know, finding business ideas through a concept called a rip, pivot and jam, which you have probably heard of many times on this podcast. And if you're based in the U.S., I'm looking to host our first live event, uh, September 28th, Sunday, piggybacking off one of Ezra Firestone's events. Uh, he's doing a small conference in Austin, Texas. Good friend of the show. Uh, I'll be going to his event. So hopefully you guys can make it. Uh, if you want more information about this event and how to get tickets, go to buildmyonlinestore.com. Click on the Mastermind tab. Join the mailing list there, and I'll keep you posted with more information in late June once I hammer out some more details. All right, thanks. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. Don't deliver a product, deliver an experience. You're listening to the Build My Online Store podcast, and I'm your host, Terry Lynn. We're here to talk about running an online store and building a strong e-commerce brand to take your online store to the next level. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com. Let's get on with the show. Today, I've got my buddy, Nick, over in Guangzhou, China. What's going on, Nick? What's going on, Terry? Thanks for having me, man. Excited to be on this. Yeah, thanks for having me on uh, your show, Elevator Life, too. A super cool one uh, about manufacturing in China and getting kind of bootstrapping there uh, as an entrepreneur. But just to kick things off, uh, who are you and what do you do? Absolutely. Uh, my name is Nick Ramil. Yeah, serial entrepreneur, so involved with importing into China, product development, also run a blog on business in China and uh, a private mastermind group for business in China as well. 
right, we had our previous guest, uh, Ryan Beltran, over at Original Grain, and that's kind of how I first met him and met you first. So what's the story behind that, and how did you guys end up in China? Yeah, really, uh, I mean, we've been in China since 2010, and... Ryan Beltran got in touch with me through a family friend, actually through my cousin in 2011. And he wanted to come over to China and kind of see what was going on here. So he was really our first uh, protege, if you will, uh, of the of the entrepreneurial world here in China. Um, and he really just fit in really well with the group. And we just got to show him that entrepreneurial lifestyle. And he loved it. And, you know, from there, he just decided, I'm, I'm going to jump into this as well. And he's really capitalized on it. And, you know, it's been incredible to see his growth as an entrepreneur and an individual as well. And, you know, we, I was talking to him this morning. We, we talk multiple times a week. And it, it was simply just a matter of chance that connected us. But now, uh, you know, now we're best of friends. And he'll actually be over here in about two weeks. I'm meeting him in Hong Kong. So, you know, we, we linked up through, uh, through family. And, and, and now, you know, we're... We're just a few few buddies take, you know, trying to take over this entrepreneurial world in China. How did you end up in China in the first place? After graduation, we really didn't want to go to the corporate route. Uh, we kind of wanted to build build our own value and and you know, make our own future. And China was and is the the most exciting place to be right now for an entrepreneur. Uh, you know the growth here domestically and the opportunities available internationally, such as uh, crowdfunding, product development. It, it just really felt like a good place to set up home base. It hasn't let us down so far. We believe there's exponential growth here in China compared to other places and other opportunities uh, that you can find globally. So we thought. You know, we'll just pack up our bags after graduating from uni and move to China and been here ever since. So what did you guys do at first then while you were figuring out the whole product side of the business? Uh, first as English teachers. That's kind of how a lot of people make the transition. You you get invited over by school and they'll give you good hours and, you know, you can kind of make your own schedule. Of course, we did it the wrong way and we, we got a, a pretty short end of the stick, if you will. But pretty much you, you come over and you get, we do part-time teaching. And then, you know, in the off time, maybe an afternoon or three or four days a week, you can be focused on building your business. And, and living costs are very low here. You're making relatively low income on an international level. But in China, it's more than enough to sustain a comfortable lifestyle while saving a little bit to, uh, you know, provide funds for your bootstrapped company. Gotcha. And so uh, what did you guys do starting out while you were teaching English? To be honest, the first six months, we were just trying to survive. <laughs> um, China, as you know, is a very different place than the rest of the world. It, it beats to its own drum and, and that's what makes it one so exciting, but also a, a very difficult place to thrive and survive. So what we did was we were teaching for the first six months and then we realized, you know, Guangzhou is really the manufacturing hub of China. Do a lot of sourcing projects and you can kind of connect the dots from manufacturers to consumers or customers back to in your home country for us, for us, which was the United States. So what we did was started doing little sourcing projects here and there. Um, you know, some people would need something for their restaurant or maybe um, someone needed, you know, advertising products like pens or t-shirts, something really easy, simple to do products that we uh, we had access to here down in Southern China. And we thought it'd be easy. And, and again, it was a steep learning curve for that business model, but we slowly but surely uh, kind of made the transition from teaching to teaching part-time more into pretty much doing sourcing projects for other companies uh, and, you know, friends and family back home. Just really, it's important to hammer your network back home. And, you know, I live in China. What do you need? I can get it for you. That was really the approach we took that 
kind of started down our entrepreneurial path. So a lot of hustle uh, to get kind of business here and there to get everything rolling up on the ground. Oh man, all it is is the hustle day in, day out. (laughs) It's been almost five years and the same hunger, the same hustle amount, just every day, just trying to, to build more and more value for ourselves. Yeah, awesome. And so what's the transition like from being sourcing agent to building your own brand at Lexel? Because I know, you know, a lot of people kind of do the agency side of business, but they never make the transition into brand owners. So why did you guys do that? Well, real quick, we did that because we felt, you know, there's nothing more valuable than building a personal brand or your own brand. We recognize that on our blog with the elevator life of building a personal brand. And then, you know, really the the goal is to have your own product and then you know you can dictate the the price the channels it goes through how how you sell it you you have to develop the know-how with sourcing you know it's not like you just show up in a factory and it's you know uh, one two three and there's basic how-to steps it's it's a a very time-consuming process to learn how to properly source and you know this very well too quality control working with factories is is not something you can learn overnight so after after you learn really the the processes and ins and outs of of sourcing and and how manufacturing works then what you go ahead and do is uh, what we believe is jump in and start building your own brand so then you start to build your own value and, and we think there's nothing more valuable than that yeah, because from some other people I've talked to, like people that play the agency business, like it's really dependent on both sides of the equation, right? Like you need to balance the factory and your customers, your client side, and it becomes a big hassle like when projects get really big. Yeah, exactly. And, and then again, it's kind of more like you or you're working for the customer or you're working you know, for the factory. You're kind of split between the two if you're in the broker kind of agent role. But once you break off and break into your your own brand then you know your it's your company and your brand and you're working directly with factory so then there's a lot more freedom then you're much more dependent on yourself you know it's up to you and the decisions you make and you know how much work you put into it is is how much you can really get out of it so how did you guys end up uh, making stone watches over at lexel stone watches started because as we just discussed ryan one of our very good friends he was doing wood watches you know natural products are, are very on the front end of the trends right now wood has been there for a few years you know we thought after wood what's next and we hadn't seen anyone on the market with stone and we looked into it and a, lo- a lot of people said it was too difficult or not reasonable or too cost intensive to, to cut the stone down but we thought if we could be the first ones to do it uh, we would definitely kind of carve out our own niche and we, we would be successful because, you know, we have access to all the resources and all the factories that we need to, you know, complete the project. And when we did Stone, uh, after kind of, you know, testing the viability with some friends or, you know, asking our other entrepreneurial friends, hey, what do you think of this, uh, move, you know, moving into this niche market? There was a, a very good reaction to it. So we said, all right, let's let's go ahead and see if we can do it. And how did you gauge the reaction? Because people always say, you know, the best reaction is if someone gives you the credit cards. So how did you guys process that feedback starting up? Well, first and foremost, we had to we had to see if there was the interest. So we we started posting it in some of our entrepreneurial forums. 
we started again asking other like-minded entrepreneurs and even going to you know bigger corporate brands and, and bigger players in the, in the watch game and, and then asking you know have you seen this have you heard about this do you think there'd be a niche for that and and there was a yes so they, they said all right you know let's go ahead and see if we can develop it we, we were really confident in the fact that we knew if if we developed a product we wear personally you know there'd be consumers out there who would also be willing to, to make that purchase. And then, of course, the, the best place to validate your idea after you have it produced would be a, a crowdfunding site, Kickstarter, Indiegogo. That is the number one gift to entrepreneurs today, uh, in our opinion, is the ability to really test your product before you have to make the investment in inventory. Because you can take a couple thousand dollars, get your exact model or prototype made, have some photos taken, come up with a pitch, and then if you put it on Kickstarter, that is really uh, how you validate your product, or that will tell you, you know what, no, no one is interested in this. How much did you guys spend on your first samples of the watches? Because watches aren't really cheap to like get samples made or get the parts. And if it's, how did you guys do that starting? Out? For, uh, all in for Lexel, it was about six thousand dollars, give or take, getting the molds made, sourcing, sourcing all the materials, and I mean this includes all of our trips to the factories. You know, we did it very, very lean because you know what, we think that's the obviously the best business model you can do. After spending that money, we then put it up on on our crowdfunding side on our Kickstarter page, and there was an instant. It was pretty much an instant success. We reached our goal in two hours. And then we, we went far beyond it, which we were very excited about. That really told us, you know, okay, this is this is going somewhere. So then obviously once the Kickstarter funds were released, we were able to um, start production. But also because we have our import business with wine, uh, you know, we were able to get the, the initial capital we needed and also some of the production capital to start early, start earlier before the campaign ended into pretty much to the factories. So then they were able to uh, start our production. Very cool. And so what did you guys do for like Kickstarter outreach? Because I know a lot of people just put the page up and it's a lot of groundwork to get like PR, press and friends to share. So what did you guys do kind of before the launch or the day of the launch to get everything set in like the first two hours? One of the things we learned actually, and we can discuss this a little more as well, was even the months leading up to to our campaign, you know, reaching out to friends, uh, reaching out to family, I, I mean really to the deepest, darkest corners of your network, you would just kind of reach out, let them know you're starting a project or maybe let them know you're thinking about launching a product, just kind of creating a buzz around it. And then we would, obviously it's really important to get your social media all set up, you know, in, in every outlet, your, your Tumblr, your Twitter. And then from there, it was a month before, then two weeks before, kind of priming, priming the network a little more, uh, a week before, then you'd start kind of building up those social media channels, you know, reaching out uh, again to the network. And then day of launch, it was really just 24 hours of running, running through everybody you've already contacted and letting them know it's up uh, on, you know, on Facebook for asking for shares, 
you know, on Twitter asking for retweets and everything like that. And that was really the initial push uh, because our, our networks have been primed. That was the initial push though, those first, you know, two or three days. It just spread all over all of our networks. You know, you know I, have a, I have a few business partners and, and we have mutual networks and then outside networks. So overall, it was, uh, we, we got some great exposure uh, through, again, just like you said, you know, groundwork, groundwork, groundwork. When you say prime your network, are you like, as far as like one person getting like touched from you guys, is it like three times or kind of like five times? Or are you saying like, yeah, for us, I mean, for example, I would reach out to a friend of mine on Facebook or via email, whatever channel you want to use and let them know, Hey, just want to let you know, um, product I'm launching, you know, take a look. I'd be curious to know what you think when it gets closer to the launch. Um, a, we're planning to launch this next week. Uh, you know, I'd really appreciate it if you could, you know, help support even just a share or like on Facebook. Those, those go really far, you know, and, and then from there, it was day of, it was, you know, here's our link to our campaign. Could you please help us share, um, give it a like, a tweet, whatever to pretty much help help your network, um, you know, see see this is something we're started. And, and, and Kickstarter is all about eyeballs. You know, rule number one is get as many, every single eyeball you can get on your campaign, get it there, regardless of their background, you know, how you know them, you know, any, any, anybody seeing your campaign is a good thing and it's a numbers game the, the more people we see it again well you know the, the odds are you'll have more conversions so it's not just like hey we launched check out our page it's like a long process of kind of priming them because i think a lot of people do what i just said they just go hey i launched a kickstarter you know share it but you're like who are you like i haven't talked to you in like 10 years why are you sending me this exactly exactly i can't even tell you the amount of the i mean i, I did as well as i could but the amount of those kind of awkward small talk Facebook conversations I had to have, <laughs> you know, le- leading up to launch were, were, were countless. But, but you know, again, it, it's much better than just like you said, oh, hey, by the way, here's my campaign. I'm launching it. You have to, you have to let everybody know, you know, you have to, again, you have to warm up to it. And, and, and it's definitely something that pays dividends because, you know, the, the fact that you've had a few conversations leading up to it, it's not just hey, can you do me this favor? You know, you've at least built it up a little bit. And, you know, that that's definitely important when you're asking for a favor. So uh, one thing you mentioned when we met up in person a couple of weeks ago, uh, you were saying how you guys had a Kickstarter that ended in early December and uh, there were kind of some chargebacks or issues with the campaign. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you go into de- some detail about that? Absolutely. Timing is, is everything for Kickstarter. What we failed to realize was we launched our campaign towards the end of the year and we had to compete with Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and then of course products being delivered by Christmas or or people wanting to buy a a watch as a gift or a Christmas gift and we simply couldn't do that. Our production time was too limited and we wanted to be able able to meet the the Christmas deadline. We didn't want to tell people we could so we we absolutely had a lot of cancellations and and again um, chargebacks because of the fact people realized they overextended themselves uh, on Kickstarter buying, buying a watch and then they Christmas season came around and, and all the big sales and they ended up uh, picking up gifts or picking up other things they needed for, for the season and saying, you know, we, we really support you, but uh, kind of kind of spent too much on Black Friday or I got a new TV on, um, on Cyber Monday and, and simply the funds that they had for the watch had, you know, been used for uh, another product. And, you know, that was something that we realized 
we definitely need to plan for next time. So, you know, the timing is very important and you don't want to don't want to launch a campaign, you know, or, you know, around any major holidays. I mean, even thinking about, for example, July 4th coming up, you know, if, if with that weekend coming around, you know, a lot of people will be off with families or out camping. You know, you have to take all this into account for when you launch your campaign or if it's in the middle of your campaign, because you'll definitely there's definitely lower times of uh, activity on Kickstarter uh, or also lower times of people can commit you know the funds to it than others so you definitely have to be aware of those times so it sounds like a lot of the Kickstarter people aren't people with like spare cash thing because I always thought it was just like people that had a couple extra bucks wanted to invest in here and there support someone but I guess it turns out it's not that that's not the case yeah I mean I mean you know our watches uh, we were between a hundred and two hundred dollars and and some people would pick up two or three and then realize, oh shoot, you know, I just spent $500 on three watches. Do I need that? Or, or should I spend that same money on, on Christmas gifts for uh, my wife or my kids or, or what have you? So uh, obviously we, <laughs> we lost out on the battle for the guy who'd want a few watches or the gifts or the family. So, you know, that's something we, we realized we don't want to compete at that time anymore. Yeah. Hashtag uh, consumerism. Right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so one thing I noticed about your Kickstarter campaign is that you guys only set the initial goal of 15,000. Uh, why that number? Uh, was that enough to kind of get started or what was the rationale behind that? Setting the goal of 15,000 was just we wanted to simply validate. For us, we wanted and expected much more based off uh, the market research we've done for watches on Kickstarter. But again, you know, you never want to set your ambitions uh, or you never want to set them too high. And again, 15,000 was just, okay, if, if that's all we received, it would have been, okay, people were interested. Now, how do we get it on a broader scale? You know, maybe, like, maybe there's only had a couple hundred eyeballs on it. Maybe, you know, we didn't get the proper or proper media exposure. Uh, again, it's a, it's a numbers game. So the whole thing was maybe that we just didn't do what we were supposed to do. Uh, we expected to do much more, but that was just, you know, if we reach this number, we'll be able to get it at start, but We'll, want, we'll take it much further than that. Yeah, and there's a numbers game too, where if you look at how much you guys raise, like 220,000 uh, versus a 15,000 goal, rather than if you set the goal at 200,000, you only beat it by like 20K. Exactly. There's, a, there's an expectations thing there too. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, setting, setting your goal, you know, anything above 100,000 is, is very ambitious. We, we feel and then we love the ambition but also um, you know if you if you don't meet your goal of course then you don't receive the funds and that's not something uh, <laughs> we we wanted to deal with if you're short by one or two thousand you know that'd be that'd be a tough pill to swallow yeah exactly all right so after the Kickstarter you know you guys have all the sourcing experience getting stuff out uh, what's kind of the future for the for Lexel uh, right now? yeah right right now Lexel I mean we have our e-commerce shop up and and we're doing well with sales on on this channel and, and then what our plan now is to go ahead and kind of kick it up a notch to a a more premium level watch uh, you know Lexo is, is a great watch and a great value watch uh, but we we want to kind of target a more of a higher end premium consumers so our, our next Kickstarter which will be launching next month is you know going to be I mean, what I can tell you right now is we've stepped everything up from the stone we use to the movement to uh, the leather bands we're using to uh, the 
clasp, you know, the, the, to the sapphire glass, everything like that. We're we're taking it to the next level, and because we we've seen a, a good demand, a good amount of demand in our in our watches now, aren't the watch line we have now and the price point. But people also uh, have been asking, you know, what's what's coming next, and obviously we we feel the. The next market we want to penetrate is more of a middle to high one. Uh, the consumers in this range will be able to purchase these watches without having to, you know, think twice about it. Which, which is the consumers we want to position ourselves with. Yeah. So in terms of price points, how would that be different from Lexile? Because I think Lexile is like one fifty, two hundred. Are we looking at five hundred plus, a thousand plus? Yeah, we're we're still settling down on on the pricing. We don't want to go to the ultra premium to start, but absolutely probably between. Between you know the I want to say between the three and six hundred dollar range somewhere in there we haven't settled down yet uh, exactly because we're still working out all the costs uh, sourcing the materials but you know all in it's definitely going to be a, a next level watch I don't know whether it's going to be as I said the premium level but we're definitely st- taking it up another level or two yeah and so what does the watch market look like in terms of like different price points I know like on the high end you have like a Patek Philippe or something that's like 10k but what does it look like like say from like like you know 20 to 100 100 200 300 to 500 because because I, I remember you mentioned you tested some different pricing points for Excel and you learned different things right so what, what were the kind of the things you learned there yeah well what we really learned is you know the the market from let's say 100 to 200 it's definitely segmented and I mean let's put it at 250 and below to start and that's definitely going to be your entry-level watch and then anything where you're looking at about 400 or 500 and above is going to be your, your middle to high tier. From 500, you really just make that jump to 1,000 and above. And you know that, that's when you're at your premium market. We want to step up from, that, from the entry level to the mid level and eventually it'd be great to make it to that premium market. But right now we're focused on the, taking it just up one more to that mid level market. Gotcha. And so how did you find out that there were these different segments? Uh, for us, what, what it's been a lot of, again, is doing a lot of market research, looking at brands that we would like to say are our competitors. Not saying they are because you know, they're much larger. Uh, but for example, I mean, if you look at a Nixon, one of the biggest brands in the world, or you look at a Fossil, they have their brand kind of segmented in, in certain markets. And then you can, as we said, jumping like to that middle market, then you get into some designer brands, you know, uh, Armani is definitely in that kind of middle middle to higher market as an example of a brand and then if you go up to the top then you're looking at the tag heroes and the rolexes and the hublots of the world if you look at these brands and and where they position themselves you'll notice the price points also kind of sync up based on the market they're trying to penetrate but like everything you with all sales you you have to know your market and and the beauty of e-commerce is being able to kind of play around and figure out your, your sweet spot and of course it depends on what you're offering and the sales and the promotions and your marketing but but all in you're able to play around with and see exactly which market you you fit into uh, for your product gotcha yeah it reminds me of the car market where you have like Toyota General Motors Ford battling like kind of the mass market but then you move up you have like audi bmw and then you go up you have like a rolls royce your bentley's and like you go up even more there's like you know lamborghinis things like that yeah absolutely I'm, I'm, that's a perfect example you you have your your entry level where that, that's going to be the greater majority of the market then then you step it up a level you know to those audi bmw lexus mercedes of the world where it's definitely a step up 
but not, you know, not the, the biggest step. And then, like you just said, the, the Lamborghinis and the Rolls Royces uh, are the premium level. The majority can't access it, and it, it's definitely more exclusive. You know, you have to find your competitive advantage and, and what's unique and, you know, what the market's willing to pay for it. Yeah, so how are you guys... Uh, planning to find these guys that can buy, like, say, a $500 watch? For us, the, the most important thing has been branding and our marketing, making sure we position ourselves both through what we associate ourselves with in regards to the brand and our and our competitors is, is going to be positioning ourselves where we believe we fit in the market based off, again, our competition. You can, you're able to learn a lot off of the other brands who are out there and you know what they're marketing at and how they're marketing to them and you can you know adjust uh, adjust and tailor your own strategy for how to penetrate uh, you know that niche and penetrate that brand especially if you're bringing something new to the market you can carve out your nice own little niche there uh, as long as more or less a level playing field the people you want to be competing with yeah so you brought up something interesting you know finding your niche within products so what are your thoughts on that since you have a sourcing background? Because like say, you know, I want to make fans or shares, but how would you make something like that stand out from the market? Or what is your philosophy on that? When you're looking to kind of disrupt a market or find a niche, I really think the best way to do it is, you know, Dan's motto, Dan Andrews, is that the whole rip pivot jam idea. For me, uh, I really love that business model because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to come out with the next greatest tech development or the next greatest watch. For me, I, I love the approach of, of taking, seeing something that's been successful in the market, taking it and, and pivoting it just a little bit to make it your own, whether you're slightly improving it in, in your opinion or slightly just changing it or, or adjusting it a little bit and, and then reintroducing it to the market your own way. And again, making that niche, that, that's the beauty of branding marketing and advertising today, you can you can line up your product with whatever with whatever lifestyle you want or with whatever demographic you want. It, it it's up completely up to you. You just have to decide what that is and, and hopefully it's the best choice. And and if not, you, you can always reposition yourself. And that's something that's great about uh, the world today as well. You know, if you, if you thought, say, demographic A was going to be your main consumers, but it turns out uh, demographic B is is actually the better target market for you, it, it's easy for you to, again, change and tailor, re, reposition, retailer your marketing and positioning plan and, and, you know, start to make inroads into that market. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because on my own store, uh, Baller Leather, uh, most of my sales has actually been coming from women, even though the wallets are from men. So it turns out it's actually it's actually wives buying the wallets for the husbands, not husbands. Like there's been a few guys buying it, but by far, probably like 60% is like women buying it for their boyfriends or husbands. So I think like marketing-wise, like I've been leaning towards that too because I think women tend to buy more online, at least in the past few years. And kind of it's something I didn't realize until, like you said, until you start doing it. Yeah, you know, it, you really aren't going to know, you know and, until you try, you know, trial by air and uh, Branton's famous motto, screw it, let's do it. You, you, you just really have to get in there and, and figure out what works and, and what doesn't because every product is unique. Every business has problems to solve, you know, whether you have the best product and not enough eyeballs, or maybe you have, you know, a ton of exposure, but your product just isn't doing it for the people getting to your website or the consumers who are thinking about buying it, but never actually, you know, check out with their, with their cart and your product, with your product in their cart. So you have to get out there and, and really figure out how 
do I position this to be most successful? And, and the thing is, it's always changing because you're always having new competitors. That whole kind of idea of just kind of sitting back and, you know, passively building a brand once you've launched, I don't think that's a reality. I think there's steady, steady growth. But if you really want to take it to that next level, you have to be very active in developing your brand and making sure you stay on top and, and stay with or, if possible, in front of the trends to make sure that you're always on the uh, the front lines of, of the innovation. So what are some ways you look at trends and making sure that you're staying ahead of the front lines? In, in regards to Lexel or any of the product development we've seen, we, we look at what's been thriving in, in the marketplace or what, what's been doing well. And we look at a way it can be improved. We look at how we believe we can make it better. And of course, being based in China, a lot of the trade shows here that we attend uh, are all of the latest and greatest products. And we have access to, you know, we, you know, we go to these shows on a frequent basis and, and just cruise, you know, spend days, hours. It, it's exhausting just walking around these shows and, and see, seeing, you know, what, what sticks out to us? What do we think we could take and turn into our own? And, and again, it's just being aware of, of what's going on in the market and trying to see where you can improve it. And we, it should be something you're interested in. You know, for we we don't want to get into like uh, like like you just said the fan game or maybe like the cup game. You know, those those are harder things to to innovate and you know, probably higher things with barriers to entry. But if you get into something that's a lifestyle or something that you're interested in as an individual, it's much easier to kind of break it down. How can I put my own unique spin on this? To reverse engineer it from from your goal of what it is and, and then break that down backwards and say, uh, how, how can I, what can I change about this watch to, from where it is now uh, to where I want to get it? And then, you know, you, you kind of fill in the middle parts. Yeah, like the high volume, low price point, you know, mass ordered fans or chairs games. You know, I don't want to play that game. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's non-recurring orders too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. As long as you're providing a, a high value product, uh, you know, and, you, and you're truly confident in, in what you're putting out, uh, that, that really shows through in, in, in the craftsmanship and in, in the customer service and in, in the, the dedicated dedication you have for the, the marketing and, and the advertising. You know, if you're, if you're doing all high quality stuff, uh, consumers easily recognize this. And, and, you know, that's been a part of the game forever from, you know, I mean, even when I was out two nights ago, like going cruising, uh, trying to find a restaurant to eat at and we couldn't decide. Like we, we just stopped at the one that had <laughs> the nicest looking menu and really nice presented photos. And it was like, Hey, you know, these people really care about how they're presenting themselves. And, and we pay, paid a more expensive price and, and the food was great and we were happy with our experience. So it's all about the experience, you know, you're providing for that consumer. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a universal truth across all industries. Yeah, and I think it's a little details too, uh, especially like e-commerce, like whether it's like a thank you note or kind of the way your website text lines up or if the photos are all the same size. There's all these little things that you, you kind of seem to forget about after your product's been validated or maybe, you know, you, you don't have the time for it. You'd be surprised how making these little changes or making these new offers, um, you know, perhaps an anniversary sale or, you know, anything related to where people can say, oh, okay, you know, this, this person really cares about his product and, and we're a big believer in customer service, uh, you know, just making sure whenever there's a problem, you know, always will be handled. The customer's always right kind of mentality and that's harder to find in, in our more interconnected world today and we pride ourselves in, on taking care of that and that's definitely had gotten us a very high referral rate, just word of mouth.
you know, and that's that's uh, those are some of the best consumers. Gotcha. And so just to wrap things up, you also mentioned uh, you guys are working on a new Kickstarter brand, kind of our high-end product. So what's the story behind this? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Vichero, which which you'll be seeing up on Kickstarter within, I want to say, the next two months, is, again, is going to be our next level watch. We'll be integrating marble into it. So, you know, stepping it up from the current stones we have now, uh, stepping up our movement, to toss some automatic movement, uh, just really aesthetically making the watch look like it belongs in that you know higher tier market is what I can tell you right now. Um, I know we're we're setting up our social media and stuff, and I'll, I'll make sure to sh- share all that information with you when I get it. But but really, it's just about take, taking things to the next level because we we've tested out our as we said, our, our mass market watch, and that was a success. And now we think we can penetrate that next tier of consumers uh, based off what we've learned doing our entry-level watch. Gotcha. All right. Very cool. So uh, where can we find you online, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of course, you're, you're in my face at The Elevator Life. You know, our latest episodes, you and me, uh, that's that's our business blog we run. And then you know, if you're curious about business in China, then our private mastermind group, Enter China, uh, www.enterchina.co. Uh, we have a free ebook up there where you can read you know, a lot more in depth about what me and my business partners uh, have been able to accomplish in China. And, you know, if you're serious about jumping into China, this is definitely a place you should consider, uh, a community you should consider joining. Awesome. Very cool. So Nick, thanks a lot for joining us today and uh, we'll keep in touch. Absolutely, Terry. Thanks for having me, man. And uh, hopefully see you sooner than later. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Build My Online Store podcast. If you want the show notes, make sure to check out the website at buildmyonlinestore.com. If you've got an e-commerce store, every two weeks I lead a live mastermind call with about five or six of the listeners in two separate groups where we work openly together and solve a business problem that you have. And we're all there to support each other. So if this sounds like a cup of tea, make sure to check us out at buildmyonlinestore.com slash mastermind. Thanks again for tuning in and I'll catch up with you guys next week.